Father God, as a nation, we are saddened again at the horror and the vileness that has been perpetrated in Ohio and Texas. And Father, we pray for those who are fighting for their lives. We ask that you would give wisdom to the doctors and nurses, the technicians who are caring for those on the cusp of life and death. And Father, we think of families whose lives have been shattered through such a senseless, evil act in two different states. And we ask, Father, that in the midst of unspeakable grief, that you would bring comfort. And, Father, that you would be with those who are bringing comfort. And maybe even in some of the services that will go on for those who have lost their lives, that maybe even in the midst of such evil, some would look to you. Many, a nation, would look to you. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word this morning, Lord, above all, we want to be driven by what you have written as truth. We believe it to be super cultural. We don't want to be driven by culture or correctness. They may matter, but they don't matter when it comes to your truth. And so guide us as we look at a particularly difficult text and topic. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you who have been in the church for a little while, a year or so, know that last fall and through the winter and early spring, I preached from 1 Kings chapters 1 to 19. And you remember in 1 Kings chapters 1 to 19, we have the beginning of the monarchy in Israel and then the divided monarchy. And we have the separation of Israel, the 10 tribes up north, and Judah, the two tribes in the south. And we have all sorts of difficulty. And we learned about their life and we learned about their worship services. And I need to say that as I look at the months in which we were in 1 Kings 1 to 19, I didn't get a single text. I didn't get a single note. I didn't get a single phone call. Nobody messaged me. If you tweeted, I didn't see it. Nobody asked me about how unfair it is in some people's eyes that out of 12 tribes, only one tribe has any potential at the priestly role. Nobody pointed that out to me. In fact, in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, we have the same situation. Nobody from Zebulun or Asher, nobody from Gad, they don't get any chance. Judah, no, his tribe is left out. In fact, when Israel goes into the promised land, God divides the land among 11 tribes, and then he says to the tribe of Levi, your inheritance is eternal. You don't get a land inheritance here. I want you scattered among the other 11 tribes 
because out of you will form all of the priestly role. That means that 11 of the 12 tribes have no possibility of serving in the role of priest. Now, if you go to Numbers chapter 26, you'll discover that the Levitical tribe is 3.8% of the population. So that means that 96% of the population immediately cannot serve as priests. But we got to chop that in half because the women don't qualify. So 1.9% of the population has any possibility of serving in the priestly realm. 98% just by birth are excluded from serving as priests, as clergy, in the entire Old Testament. And in almost 30 years of pastoring, no one's pointed that out to me. I haven't had one person say in an email, a, a letter, a phone call, a discussion, that's really unfair. 1.9% are included 98% are excluded by birth. That is unfair. But nobody has ever pointed that out to me. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, you remember the archetypical evil king of Israel is Jeroboam. 26 times, I think, we read of kings that come after him you have followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam and done evil in the sight of God. And Jeroboam is the first king that we know of ever to appoint a non-Levite male to the priesthood. And God declares it as evil. That's the Old Testament. And then we come into the New Testament and if a pastor or a non-pastor believes not based on culture and not based on correctness, but based on interpretation of biblical inspired and errant text, that again the priesthood or clergy is relegated only to male, not to female, one could be open to charges of chauvinism, misogyny, and the like. Now, some of those charges may be valid. I hate chauvinism. I hate misogyny. I hate it with a passion. But I do believe that the text overwhelmingly says that those who are pastors need to be male. I believe that's what the text says. Not because I believe that men are superior or more competent or more qualified or have earned the right or are more intelligent. I don't believe that at all. I think that's all nonsense. I believe that the text says that pre-fall and post-fall. Don't miss that in today's text because both are there. I'm going to lay all my cards right on the table. I believe that both genders are equally made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. I believe both genders have, through faith in Christ, 
a future and an inheritance in heaven. I believe that both genders are equally intelligent or less so. Uh, both genders are equally competent or less so. I believe that in every way there is an equality in terms of the ability to lead. I believe that. I just do. I have incredibly competent women in my life. I have incredibly competent women that I work with. I outright believe that. If you grew up in my house, you would have heard me say to my daughters from really, really young, when you grow up, you can be president and I'm voting for you. And I meant it. And now I have a 21-month granddaughter. She happens to be brilliant. I say that with all humility. She takes after her nana, my wife, Betty Ann. And when she grows up, if she runs for president, I'm voting for her as well. But I still believe, based on biblical text, that God has given spiritual headship in the home, Ephesians 5. I'm not going to exegete that today. And in the church, to men. Not based on competence, not based on intelligence, not based on anything we deserve, but God chose to do that before the fall and after the fall. That's how I see the text today. Let me pick up and read from 1 Timothy 2. I want to read verses 9 to 14. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold, or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and with good works. Let a woman learn quietly, hesekia, very important word, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, hesekia. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, that's pre-fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, that's post-fall, and became a transgressor. I'm not going to interact with verse 15, but I'll read it and make one comment. And she will be saved through childbirth. Saved means she will find fulfillment through childbirth if they continue in faith and love and holiness without self-control. Let me begin by giving a few overarching comments. First, the question is not can. The question is not, can a woman serve in a pastor-elder role? Because the answer clearly is yes. But can is not the right word. Should is the right word. Biblically speaking, should a woman serve in the role of pastor or elder? That's really what we ought to be talking about. It's not a can word. It's a should word. Second, you already know my position I'm complementarian. Can I fellowship with and serve alongside those who are not complementarian? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. Why should I not? This is not a heresy issue. It's not a salvation issue. It is a faithfulness to the text. And I read it in one way and somebody else, if they're looking at the text and not culture... And they read it another way. Why should we not be able to serve side by side? Have I trained pastors that totally do not have my view? 
in more than one country. It's not a salvation issue. We're not talking about heresy, but we're talking about being as faithful to the text, and I'm going to translate it and interpret it the way that I think is most faithful. But if somebody has a different view, I can have fellowship because this is not a salvation issue. Third, what I believe is that genders are different but share worth, value, contribution, eternal security, eternal home. I believe that. In fact, actually, one of the words I just used, I don't really believe, because I said contribution. If I'm really honest, in the many years that I've pastored, women attend church more than men. Women serve more than men. Women read books more than men. They just do. That is to our shame, men, but it's reality. Fourth, do I believe that there are only two roles, elder pastor, that are reserved for men? Actually, I believe three. I'm not going to make a lot of time in the third one, but I believe that the main teacher in a mixed adult audience is male, and I think the text will bear that out. Fifth, this is very interesting. Dr. Bob Yarbrough, he wrote an article, a very scholarly article I do not believe has ever been refuted. He examined all of the abstracts and the history of commentaries on 1 Timothy for the last 1,950 years. He did a diachronic through-time study. And his observation, which is published in the highest of highest scholarly journals, is this. Almost everyone interpreted the text the same way until 1969. That's remarkable. And yet nobody has refuted that yet. Think about what happens in 1969 in our country and then across the world. Maybe we have allowed culture to interpret Scripture, but Scripture is supercultural. It's above culture. It's not to be interpreted in light of culture. Sixth, if my numbers are right, uh, Dr. Bao wrote an article on Ephesus. Again, I don't think it's been refuted. One of the ways that since 1969 people have interacted with this text is they've said what Paul is interacting with is radical feminism in a very particular spot, Ephesus, in the late first century, somewhere around 58 or 60, and that Paul is writing to a particular spot, a particular situation, and the text has no bearing on the rest of church history. Now, there are several really important things that are being said there. If you allow any of Scripture to be written to a particular situation that has no bearing on the rest of history, that would be every text, wouldn't it? There is no text that is not written to a particular time, a particular spot, and a particular situation. Absolutely no text. So if you allow that to say that it doesn't have bearing today, you might as well throw out the entire Bible. 
But Dr. Bao did more than that. He actually began to examine if that was a true argument. And he discovered in Ephesus in the first century, we do not have a single female magistrate outside of the temple of Epaphrodita. We do not have a single female serving as a priest in any religion or any temple. In other words, the argument that this is a radical feministic group that Paul is writing to isn't even historically true. There's no historical basis for that argument whatsoever. And so my last plea before we look at the text is this. We need to allow the text to speak as the text. It is not our preconceived views. It's not what is correct politically. It is not culture. If the Bible is inspired and inerrant, it stands alone, and it speaks to our culture. It's not shaped by our culture. So let's look at the text. We start uncomfortably and get even more uncomfortable. Verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire. I'm going to state the obvious. I'm not a fashion police person. I know I give a mixed audience with these happening threads and fine kicks, and I'm a fashionista. I get all that, but I am not the fashion police. But this is what the text is saying. When we come into a worship service, we want to dress in such a way that we don't take people's eyes off of the creator on to the creation. That's what he's saying. So however we ought to dress so that leering eyes do not act inappropriate because mostly men are idiots, we want to dress so that our focus is on the creator. It's not on the creation. You say, well, what about the braided hair and the gold and the pearls? we got a lot of violators, and the ushers are coming around. <laughs> actually, he's giving us an illustration. He's actually saying something they all would have got. The Roman court was filled with individuals who for their five minutes of fame each day, would primp and prepare themselves all day long, not for spouse, but for public consumption. He's saying when you come into a worship service, don't be like that. We come into a worship service to worship the Creator, not to ca catch attention for the creation. That's what he's saying in verses 9 and 10. Let's go on to verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly, Hesekia, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet or Hesekia. Your translation could be quiet, it could be silent, it could be peaceable. What does the word mean? Well, we're going to do a little word study together. And when we do a word study, there is a right way, and a lot of wrong ways to do a word study. The most common wrong way to do a word study is this. 
When you come to a word, you open up your Strong's Concordance, and you find that there are a hundred examples, and so you start going from one all the way down to a hundred, and I will guarantee you, 100% of the time, you will end up with the wrong understanding of the word, because words change. That is a diachronic, through time study. Every diachronic study of words change. Everyone. If you say there's a mouse in the room, if I said it 40 years ago, you'd be looking on the little ground for something squeaking. Now you're looking back there and you wonder who dropped the mouse from the computer. Who is clumsy? Because words change. When you do a word study, you need five or six words. That's it. If you go beyond that, you will get a very poor understanding of the word. And when you do a word study, you find words in that same book. That's number one. If you can't get your five or six, same author. You go outside the book. If you can't do that, then you find somebody who knows one another. So if I'm doing a study on John, and I don't have enough out of Revelation 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John, where am I going? I'm going to Matthew. Why? Because Matthew and John both grew up in Capernaum. Their vocabulary is the same. If I'm doing one on Paul, I got 13 books. If I can't find Paul, I'm going to Luke. Because Paul and Luke are companions and travel together. They probably use words the same way. So that's what we're going to do here. As it turns out, the word hasakia is actually in the same chapter in verse 2. So 1 Timothy 2.2 has this exact word. It says this, For kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Hasakia. Interestingly enough, the construction suggests to me that peaceful and the next word are synonyms. And the one that is listed first for Hebrew dominates the one that is listed second. So what the text actually says is this, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a peaceful life. That's what the text really says. I've already learned what the word means. It means peaceful, but I don't have enough examples, so I'm going to push on just a little bit. Paul wrote Thessalonians. In fact, he not only wrote Thessalonians, he wrote it about the same time he wrote 1 Timothy. So words haven't changed. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he uses the word again. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work in Hezekiah. And in the context, it's saying don't be a busybody. Don't put yourself in everyone else's business. Don't have an opinion about everything. It's not saying don't be quiet. It's not saying don't talk. It's saying be peaceful as you interact with others. I don't have to do this. I wouldn't have to go to Acts. I have enough in Paul. But I want to demonstrate how you would do it from someone who is a contemporary, Paul. So in Acts, uh, Luke, so in Acts eleven eighteen, we read this. When they heard these things, they became Hezekiah, peaceful, and they glorified God, saying... Now, if it means silent, they're told, be silent. And what do they do? They glorify God saying. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It clearly does not mean silent. The word means 
peaceful. So let me read the text, understanding what this word hesekia means. Let a woman learn in a peaceful way, with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be peaceful. I don't have the time today, but I think I could make the case in other texts that men are to learn peacefully as well. So in the peaceful area, it's even. Now, in my Sunday school class, when I'm able to go and I don't have to scoot out and go to another campus, which today I do, but we don't have Sunday school, so it's all good. Uh, I have observed that women talk like two times as much as the men in the adult Sunday school class I go to. I realize some of you are in the room, sorry. It is my observation. If this means silent, we have some excommunicating to do, don't we? But it doesn't mean that. It means learn in a way that is not argumentative, that is not dogmatic. And isn't that a command for all of us? Okay, so let's continue on in the text. The second phrase we need to deal with in verse 12 is, I do not permit a woman to teach over a man. What does that mean? Does that mean that a woman cannot teach in church? It doesn't mean that. Does it mean that some of the spiritual gifts are for one gender and not the other gender? It doesn't mean that. There is no evidence at all in Scripture that spiritual gifts are divided by gender. It does mean, though, there might be contexts in which only men should teach. I do think it means that. In Titus 2, it says, let the older women, don't read older as an age, it means mature, let the mature women teach the younger women. In 1 Timothy 1 and 3, it says, have the women teach the children and the youth about the things of God. In Acts 18, we have Priscilla, or Prisca, a woman, and Aquila, a husband, a man and a woman, taking Apollos aside who has been trained in rhetoric in Alexandria, who is a preacher, a pastor, and together they're teaching him the finer points of doctrine and theology. So we have a husband and wife teaching together, and they're teaching and training a pastor that he might equip his congregation better. We've actually followed that model, haven't we? We've had Dan and Sue McDonald together, teaching on marriage. We've had Isaiah and Amy teaching on marriage. I believe a while back uh, in a panel we had uh, Dave and Carol up here and several others. Uh, A number of years ago Betty Ann and I did a drama sermon um, or two together. A few years ago or a year ago Isaiah and Kirsten and I did a Reformation sermon together. We followed that model and we take it from Acts 18. So far from not having opportunity to teach, there are many. Third, we have again a difficult phrase in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Context matters. We're talking about a worship service. We're not talking about a CEO of a company. There are many incredibly competent female CEOs. We're not talking about the academy I've had many women who were incredible professors who have taught me a great deal, and probably you have too. We're not talking about government. 
I won't tell you my political persuasion, and I won't tell you the name, but if Jeff had his way, my number one and my number two favorite politicians, if they would only run for president, are both females. That's one guy's opinion. I'm not going to tell you who they are. They aren't running. But if I had my way, number one and number two are both females. I would love to see either one run, and they will get my vote. Unless they run against my grandbaby, then they don't get my vote. This isn't a thought that one gender is more intelligent, competent, superior. It's none of that. It's just what I see in the text. You remember uh, a few months ago, I talked about a sweatshop in New York. And I wasn't allowed to know where it was, but there were a thousand Chinese women working in the sweatshop. And they essentially started a church in it that was entirely a woman-run sweatshop. And, and I was part of raising funds for that because why would we not do that? They're sharing the gospel. They're, they're teaching biblical truth. And, and it's an all-woman church. Of course, it's going to be led by a woman. That's not in violation of anything in this text. Notice the context. It matters. Chapter breaks sometimes do us a disservice. Chapter breaks, versification, they're added later so that we can navigate the Bible. So I say please turn to 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 14. You know where to turn. Well, in this case, chapter breaks have done us a great disservice. Because in 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, it's all female. It's all about the roles of female. And then chapter 3, 1 to 7 is the role of elder, and it's all male. We miss that because of the chapter break, but it is clearly in the text. And sometimes those chapter breaks cause us not to get the implication of the text. When you get to the role of elder pastor, God designed it, for whatever reason, to be a male headship. That's what he did. At this point, I trust nobody at Highland would do this. But if I were speaking outside of Highland, somebody would raise their hand and say, yeah, Jeff, but Galatians 3.28, it trumps 1 Timothy 2.9-14. Before I cite it to you, may I just point out that Galatians was written 15 years before, so it doesn't trump what comes after. So that alone is a silly argument. But Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. It doesn't trump another text. Scripture doesn't work that way. It was written before, not after. But you know what the most damning aspect of this argument is? It takes a verse and lifts it out of context. What is Galatians about? It's about the gospel. It's about salvation. It's not about church leadership. It's not about headship. It's not about offices. It's not about any of that. It's salvation. And for the Lord, he graciously looks at us and says, it doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't even matter 
if you've been in bondage, horrific bondage as a slave, or you've been free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. If you are in Christ, you are saved. So to use Galatians 3.28 that way is to ignore the context, not only of a chapter, but the entire book. It's just not appropriate. I think the Lord could have solved the whole issue if he had only appointed Mary to be an apostle. There are no apostles today, or a pastor, or an elder. I think Mary was, without a doubt, more mature than any of the twelve. She was braver than any of the twelve. She didn't run. She risked her life. She seems to be biblically astute. Now you can't say that about all 12 of the apostles. And yet he didn't. Why? Because this is super cultural. It's before the fall and it's after the fall. Let me read verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first and then Eve pre-fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived post-fall and became a transgressor. Positional hierarchy in the church is something that is pre- and post-fall. It's tied to creation. It's not tied to Ephesus. And it's not tied to the first century. So how are we to summarize this? Let me offer a few thoughts. First, it is biblical for women to teach. And in the church, it's biblical for women to teach. Let the mature women teach the less mature. Let them teach children and youth. And alongside another male, they can co-teach as Priscilla and Aquila did. May I just make an observation? In the last church I was in, we had, a, we had an imminently, imminently qualified woman who knew more than most of the guys in the church. And she and her husband taught and she taught, and he stood against the wall like he was an ornament. I don't think that's what the text is saying. They needed to divide it a little bit better. I think they were patronizing us, patronizing the text. They could have done better. Second, as I read Colossians 3.16... Women can lead in a song, a hymn, a spiritual song. It has both genders in the text. I think the challenge becomes what constitutes teaching. It was my friend uh, Ken Moberg. Some of you know that. Ken, he was my predecessor. He used to say sometimes, Jeff, in this church, they preach the sermon before the sermon. In other words, whoever is leading worship preaches a sermon, and then Ken comes up and preaches. Or now Jeff. But if that is not occurring, it's a song, a hymn, a spiritual song. And that is given to both genders, isn't it? Third, women can serve on any leadership board other than the elder board. I think that's what 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 says. That doesn't mean that women don't have an influence on what's done on the elder board. If you think that, you would be gravely mistaken. Uh, I can tell you that unless it is confidential about a person, I go home and I talk to my wife and I know what's on the agenda. We send out an agenda five days before and 
I get her insights. Sometimes I get my kids' insights, again, non-confidential. Oftentimes I, I go to my coworkers, male and female, and say, what do you all think? And I get their insights. And, and I walk in a lot smarter than I would have been because I've got lots of insight. And I, I don't think I'm unique. I think many, most, maybe all of the elders do the same thing. So it's not like we're not getting insight. We're getting lots and lots and lots of insight as we gather together. Finally, I want to close with some words from one of my favorite authors. This passage is not about male or female superiority. Any honest male knows that the grading curve was often messed up by the girls in this class. And thanks for that. What man has not been outthought, outtalked, and outdone by his female counterparts? This is not about suitability for leadership either. It's a statistical fact that American women read more Christian books than men and that they attend church in greater numbers. Furthermore, church leadership is not about power. It's about dying. Isn't that what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12? We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Is this a dividing issue? Not for me. But I think for me it's a faithfulness issue. And it's one of those issues, actually like all of them this summer, that I want to know what God's Word says, because I think God's Word is super cultural. The intent is for God's Word to shape culture, not for culture to shape God's Word. And so as I look at Scripture, this is how I understand it. If you don't understand it that way, but you're not going to culture or correctness, but you're going to the Word of God and you interpret it differently, I think that's fair. But if we allow culture to dictate what we believe, there will be a continued degradation over and over again in the church of Jesus Christ. God's word is inerrant. It's inspired. And it ought to be our authority. Let's pray. Father God, uh, boy, seems like we've had a lot of tough topics to look at this summer and still a few more to go. And we pray, Father, as we navigate, I think, four more tough topics, that you would allow us to navigate them well. Father, where we have erred, give us humility and grace and allow us to think better and more rightly. And where we have divided your word accurately, allow us with humility and grace to stand firm, but recognize that not all issues are dividing issues. Not all issues are salvation issues. And Father, for all of us, we want to stand firmly on your word. Allow us to trust your word and to honor your word and to live it out. That's our desire. That's our hope, our prayer. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
Now, like a coward, I'm going to run to another campus.